we've got 1,007 of those 100 million. So, hey, I'm going to say something really selfish. I hope that um, as we sign up for Operation Christmas Child on December 12th, that you don't have the opportunity to participate because the 75 spots fill up so quickly that you've got to wait till next year. And so I say that as a challenge. I really think that's going to be a neat thing. It's from 6 to 10 at night on a school night. That's way past my bedtime, but I think it's worth it. And so I really want to challenge you to go to the, um, go to the website and sign up for that. It'll be a really encouraging opportunity. Well, I don't know about you, but I am really glad that this election season is over. Um, <clears throat> now we can just go back to watching you know, murders and intrigue on, on the news instead of all the other stuff that's going on. But I tell you, it seems like it gets worse with every cycle that we go through. And here's, here's my conundrum, is it seems like no matter what side of the aisle you find yourself on, that in order to run for public office, one of the prerequisites is that you cannot have one shred of humility. I mean, not an ounce. Like, you're disqualified if you have any humility at all, because you have to do whatever you can to smear your opposition to talk about how you're so much smarter than everyone else and your plan is better, and it happens on both sides. And the challenge is that even now, as Christians who answer to a king, not to a party, there is the temptation to rub people's noses and, you know, rub, rub your victory in their face or to um, riot, neither one of which are Christian responses to God's sovereign rule over our church. And, um, when we look at the humility that characterizes the Lord Jesus Christ that we will see specifically this morning in Matthew 26, 36 through 46, it stands in stark contrast to the political process here. And on this day where we have the opportunity this weekend to celebrate our veterans, it reminds us of the sacrifices that they have made and how in some way, whether they are a believer or not, by dying for something that is larger than them, that they in some small way represent who Jesus is in his sacrifice for us. So this morning, as we continue our um, conversation about the crucifixion narratives and, and look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, this offers us a very interesting insight into what Jesus is about to undergo because we see here in his prayer his perception of what he is about to go through. Being God... He knows what's about to happen. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, as his ministry begins with his birth, we see that Mary's told to name her son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says from his own lips that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as Jesus is known from eternity past that he came to die, but as that reality begins to set in, as we edge closer and closer to his crucifixion, there's the temptation for us to allow Jesus' divinity, his godness, to choke out his humanity. And yet here in the garden, we see his real humanity. We see his free choice to obey God, and we see his true courage to go forward to do the thing that he is about to do. He begins to accomplish the redemption which he came to achieve. And so at the end of the story of the crucifixion, Jesus has the opportunity to say, in the future, it is finished. But right here in Matthew 26, 36 through 46, 
It is just beginning. It's just beginning. And it's a terribly fascinating story uh, to look at, especially in light of recent events as we think about just the ultimate humility and self-sacrifice that Jesus exhibited as a leader. There's a listening guide in your bulletin. Three very simple points that just explain what we see in the scriptures. But we begin, begin with our first point in verses 36 through 38, that Jesus is stressed. Jesus is stressed. Jesus was stressed out. Some of you can identify with that really, really, really well. Jesus is stressed. His distress, his terror, his fear pictures for us his true humanity. Yes, Jesus was God, but he was a human. Look at what verses 36 through 38 say. Then Jesus came with them, with the disciples, to a, a place called Gethsemane, which literally means the place of the oil press. And he told the disciples, Hey, y'all sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking along with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. If you've been with us for any period of time, we've been going consecutively through the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, we ended with the initiation of the Lord's Supper. Jesus changed the Hebrew Old Testament Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. And after they sang a hymn and departed, they went to a favorite place to play. One of the things that's fascinating uh, to me is as you look at the way that the gospel stories unfold, there are all kinds of nameless, faceless people who are followers of Jesus that we have no clue about. Last week, there was the unnamed guy who was carrying the water bottle that the disciples were supposed to approach to use his room for the Lord's Supper. Um, Here, we have a man that owns a uh, Olive Garden, not the restaurant, that is the place where Jesus goes to pray. They are a friend. And in John's gospel, Jesus goes to this place multiple times to pray because it's a place where he can uh, may- maybe perhaps be away from the hustle and bustle of life and be out in nature. And so he takes his disciples to this, this place, and this garden is probably a walled garden. And so they get to the entrance, and he says, all right, guys, I need you to stay here except for Peter, James, and John. You three come inside uh, with me. His three most intimate, his three closest, most important leaders, he says, come inside, and they get to see something really interesting. You see, all throughout Jesus' teaching ministry, he has exhibited this very calm and cool demeanor, and it's not a show. Jesus is in control. The only time we really see Jesus get riled up is at the cleansing of the temple, and he is righteously angry, But all throughout his ministry, as he deals with people who hate him, who want to contradict his teaching, who deliberately misunderstand him, or not deliberately misunderstand him, Jesus has exhibited this very careful self-control. And at this point in the garden, right before his arrest, he allows his sorrows to show through. Doesn't that sound remarkably ungodlike? He's God. He's in charge. But he is God and he is incarnated as man. And so this sorrow, as they get closer and closer, begins to just kind of break out of his heart. And the truth is, when you're dealing with distress, you may try to hide it. Men, you're really good at this too, but you can't perfectly hide it. Distress shows through. And so he wants the company of his friends. 
So his disciples are, uh, minus Judas, are gathered around outside the perimeter of this garden. And he takes uh, Peter, James, and John with him. It's interesting because Peter, James, and John are the same people that went with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' glory was shown. These three had the opportunity to see Jesus' glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, and now they are given the privilege of seeing his grief as he's about to die for the sins of the world, as he journeys from Gethsemane to Golgotha. What we see here really is a witness to Jesus' true humanity. You see, the temptation is for us to allow his divinity to overshadow his humanity, but yet we know that Jesus experienced the full range of human feelings and emotions. Jesus slept. The Bible says that God has no need to sleep or slumber. He's always attendant upon his creation. But Jesus slept. He experienced hunger. He thirsts. He wept. Yet in his human experience, his death was unique because his death was not like your and my death. Your and my death will just be exactly what it is. Your and my death. Jesus' death was on behalf of others. He was a sin-bearing sacrifice. And so because his death was unique, his anguish was different. And as this inevitable sacrifice continued to get closer and closer and closer, Jesus experienced increasing stress and despair. It's really a very humbling picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not him walking on water. This is not him feeding 15,000. This is a stressed out Savior. We sing the song, the old hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. While those words roll off our tongues very easily in our praise, we vastly underestimate His suffering. Oh, well, I've had kids. I understand suffering. Don't belittle the suffering of the Lord by comparing it to what you've experienced. But I've lost loved ones. Jesus didn't just experience a headache. He says here that his very soul is in the process of being consumed because his grief is so significant. And I certainly don't want to belittle human suffering. But Jesus' suffering on behalf of all humanity, as he steps into our place as a substitute, as he bears the very sins of the world and becomes sin incarnate, not just man incarnate, sin incarnate. And he has to have his father turn his face away and forsake his son while he exhibits his holy wrath and perfect justice upon his son with whom he has had eternal perfect fellowship. It's painful. We underestimate the suffering that Jesus goes through as he prepares to be the savior of mankind. What do you do when you're stressed out? You get passive-aggressive on Facebook, or you disappear for a couple of days. You know, you don't want to talk, or you get mad and you kick your cat or your dog, or you take it out on your spouse, or you take it out on your kids. What does Jesus do when he's under stress? Something that I think is very instructive to us, he takes his fears, for our second point, to his father. 
He takes his fears to his father. Wouldn't you be so better off if at the, uh, in, in the pit of despair, in the valley of sorrow, if you learn to take your fears and your troubles to God? Well, the, Look with me again at verses 39 through 44. God's word says this. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me for one hour? Now, we look at verse 39 and we think Jesus just prayed a one-sentence prayer. Uh, The implication by asking Peter, Could you not stay awake with me for an hour? is that Jesus probably prayed for an hour. There's more to his prayer than what is simply recorded here in Scripture. So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and he found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. What in the world is troubling Jesus that is causing him, while he is certainly known as a man of prayer, to see this triplicate, this trinity of prayer in this abbreviated time is not something we see anywhere else in Scripture. What is it that troubles him? This is the man who has withstood the buffets of Satan as Satan appears to him to tempt him in the flesh, in the wilderness. This is the man who has withstood the insults and the injuries that are given to him by the Jewish leaders. This is the man who has continued on unabated despite the misunderstanding of his friends. Beyond that, he has always known that he came to die and he has even predicted that after he's been dead for three days, he will gloriously rise from the dead. So what is troubling Jesus is not simply his impending physical doom. It's not just the fear of death. What is it that troubles him? We get the clue in his first prayer in verse 39. He says this, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. This cup. What is troubling Jesus is not his impending death. It is this cup from which he has to drink. The cup is an image for the wrath of God. We talk about treading out the the, the grapes of wrath. Well, where do you put the stuff that comes out when you tread on the grapes of wrath? You put it in a bowl or you put it in a cup. When the uh, book of Revelation talks about the the bowls of wrath being poured out, it's an image of liquid, being pour, like, like liquid being poured out of a bowl. That's how God's wrath is poured out upon the earth. Jesus is seeking at this point in his prayer some kind of alternative to the wrath-bearing, suffering route to redemption. God, I want to save them, but do I have to do this? Is there another route? Now, just like you go to Charlotte, you can take I-77, you can take 21, you can go up Um, to uh, hands mill and go the back way through 49. Jesus is saying, if there is a different way to get to the destination, God, that's what I'm praying for. Because this is not what I want. I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to do this. But he adds a very important condition. While this is what I want, your will is more important. Now we're in church. 
which almost guarantees that you're going to lie. Um, how important is God's will to you? Oh, God's will is the most important thing. Really, uh, how much? How much? Because for most Christians, your concern for God's will and His glory extends as far as it starts to impinge upon your convenience. Jesus says, me dying as the wrath-bearing sacrifice for the world, that's a little bit inconvenient for me. Um, I don't really have it penciled in in my daytimer. So if there's a kinder, gentler way by which we can do this, your will really is important. And as a matter of fact, your will is so important to me, not what I will, but thy will be done. Have you ever prayed that? That's ah, a dangerous prayer to pray, friends. Because you might sell your house. You might move. You might change your job. There are all kinds of things about your life that might get changed. Relationships might change dramatically. The question is, how important is God's will to you? For Jesus, it was the most important thing, even though it was personally very troubling. He comes back to his disciples after praying this first prayer, and he finds them sleeping. We've already talked about this implies when he asks Peter, couldn't you have prayed for an hour, stayed awake for an hour? That Jesus prayed more than just the one sentence that we see. This is so interesting, because what Jesus has just prayed, not my will, but thine, is a contrast of Jesus' human nature with the disciples. Jesus has asked them, God, has asked, God in the flesh has asked them, stay awake for an hour. And they can't fight off their sleepiness. Whose will won for the disciples? Jesus' will was very clear to them. Stay awake with me for an hour. And yet their will wants to what? Catch a little nap. So my will, your will, my will. And listen, here's, here's why the disciples are in the picture. To give us a picture of ourselves. Here is Jesus, God in the flesh, who has the ability to say, I, I don't like this, but your will, more importantly. And then he comes to like regular humans, not God humans, human humans. And what do we do? We can't even, do, we can't even obey for an hour. We don't, we don't have the capacity to do this. Jesus, on the other hand, has asked for the cup to pass and yet submits his will to what his Father wants. Jesus does what he has asked the disciples to do to submit their will to him, stay awake for an hour. And they can't stay awake for an hour, and yet Jesus has submitted himself to bearing the wrath of God. Jesus here admits his own low view of humanity. He says, oh, listen, if you would just pray, you wouldn't give in to temptation. Listen, there's, there's a really important principle there. Um, you cannot give in to temptation at the same time that you're praying to God. So that means some of you really need to work on that prayer life. You can't walk in the Spirit and walk in the flesh at the same time. It is impossible. The problem is we walk in the Spirit so seldomly that sin seems to characterize our life a lot more than walking in the Spirit does. And he says, be, be, be vigilant, be awake and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. You will never enter into temptation when you are vigilant and you are praying. And Jesus admits his own low view. He says... The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't, isn't, do you know that? Like, don't you wish that you lived for God more consistently? I do. 
There is, there is a sense in which we will that, but then the, <laughs> the will is just so weak. We want the right thing, but we're not committed to the right thing. Because then something else happens, or and the flesh is weak. And Jesus states emphatically that prayer will fight off temptation. Here's uh, something that I just find very interesting. I don't know if I can connect the dots here, but I'm going to. And just trust God if there's an application in here. Peter's been told he's going to deny Christ three times. <laughs> he says, no way. Jesus here says, pray so that you don't enter into temptation. And what precedes Peter's three denials? Peter's three naps. He's not done what Jesus has told him to do. He's not resisting. He's not praying. And Jesus has actually given him the solution to do the thing that he says he's not going to do. And he doesn't do that, so he does the thing that he says he's not going to do. Doesn't Paul say something about that somewhere? The very thing that I want to do, I don't do. But the thing that I don't want to do, I do do. That's Peter. Right here. Three denials. And we know that they're going to happen because of his three little cat naps. There's no doubt that the frailty of his most intimate disciples is a disappointment to Jesus. They can't stay awake for an hour. And here's the thing that's interesting. He takes these three people to the Mount of Transfiguration as well. You know what they do on the Mount of Transfiguration? Fall asleep. His glory, like you don't want to fall asleep. This is like the best part of the movie. And they're sleeping through it. And then here's his grief. This is another really important part of the story. And they they sleep. They're completely oblivious to his needs. Listen, for those of you who have a problem with the church because someone has let you down, um, listen, Christians let the Lord down all the time. Just as we were completely oblivious to the needs of the Lord, we can't pray for an hour. Are you surprised when our weak flesh disappoints each other? Man, if there's anything, that's an indication that we, we need each other more to help us be vigilant against the things that, uh, the way that the flesh calls to us. And there are all kinds of things about his relationships that, 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 are, that are a disappointment and add to Jesus' suffering. Jesus knows that he himself will be the cause of Peter's cursing and the cause of Peter's great shame. Jesus knows that he will suffer blatant legal injustices. There, there are things that are going to happen legally that are complete travesties of judgment, justice. And Jesus knows that he will undergo physical brutalities that will make us wince, that will make us flinch, even thinking about visualizing them. Yet over and above all of these things, Jesus fears bearing the wrath of his father as he prepares to drink the cup set before him. Yes, the betrayal and the weakness of his friends is a disappointment to him, but bearing the wrath of God has the potential to be devastating, to consume his entire soul. As God, he says, I don't even know, as God, that I have the ability to bear up under the full and unmitigated, not watered down at all wrath of God. And we think the wrath of God is a trivial thing to just be sniffed at. Jesus as God in the flesh, I don't, know that I, I don't know that my soul will survive bearing the wrath of God. So adjust your view of God's wrath just a teensy-weensy bit. Bring it in line with what Jesus believes here. As he drinks the cup set before him, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, will be forsaken by the Father because he will, in a very literal sense, become sin. Jesus will become sin. So what does that mean? 
That's not just a fun theological thing to say. It means that Jesus becomes the Enron executive. It means that Jesus becomes the guy in the San Fernando Valley who produces porn films. It means that Jesus becomes a pimp, a drug dealer, a deadbeat dad. It means anything that you can think of that is sin. Jesus becomes a Sunday-only Christian. He becomes a drunkard. He becomes an adulterer. He becomes sin. Everything that you have done or will do or can think about doing that does not bring glory to God, he becomes that. Vile and offensive. He becomes that, and God pours out his entire cup of wrath upon his son, his only son, the one that he loves. He becomes sin. So don't for a second think that Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father is a snappily easy thing. There's a terrible price to be paid for obedience. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 22 tells us that in his body he bore the strain of this stress in such a way that something medically exceedingly rare happens. Jesus is so stressed as he lays on his face in the garden praying to the Father that the subcutaneous capillaries in his face burst under the skin so that the blood that is released from these capillaries find the only avenue of escape that they can through his sweat pores so that he is literally sweating drops of blood. Not a miracle. A medically induced condition for people who are under hyper stress. He begins to shed his blood before his blood is even to be shed. But yet as he prays, there is something incredible that begins to happen. He is stressed and, and brought to such great sorrow and he brings his request to the Father these three times and we see in verses 45 and 46 a different man who gets up off, who lays down on the ground as one man but gets up a different man and we see the strength that only prayer can provide. Look at verses 45 and 46. Then Jesus came to the disciples and he said to them, are you all still sleeping and resting? Look, it's that time. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up and let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Hidden within those two small and seemingly insignificant verses are a courage that only comes from the strength that God can provide. Jesus has just exhibited great sorrow and distress, and yet now, by the time we get to verse 45 and 46, it is gone. There is no desire on Jesus' part to flee from death. Instead, he is prepared to march out and to meet it face to face. He can see, perhaps, the torches making its way down the other valley as uh, the police come to get him. And instead of going, it's dark, we can make an escape, let's go. He says, hey, let's, let's make it a little bit easier for them so they don't have to walk quite so far. It's time. Let's go. So what has brought this inspiring strength and this impressive determination? What in the world has encouraged Jesus from laying on his face and sweating blood to this strength 
and resolve to follow God. I'll give you a clue. His disciples didn't encourage him. I read the story and I get discouraged. Guys, you still sleeping? (laughs) Wake up. He comes back again. All right, I know you're trying to act like you're not sleeping, but I can tell because your eyelids are so heavy. Come on, just an hour. That's all I'm asking for. He comes back again. Are you guys still asleep? All right. Well, listen, you're not going to be able to sleep now. It's time to get up and go. My betrayer is at hand. The disciples were of no help that we can observe in this passage. Instead, Jesus' doubts are defeated and his fears flee because he's been strengthened by prayer. His disciples have been a genuine disappointment in these 10 verses that we've looked at. But Jesus has wrestled with God in prayer and he now has a strength to go forward with resolve to accomplish the Father's Well, I want you to see something that I think is incredibly important. While the prayers that Jesus prays are very similar in verses 39 and 42, his third prayer, we don't even know anything about it. It says, after leaving him, verse 44, he went away and he prayed a third time and he said the same thing once more. There's even no record of what he actually said in his third prayer. But look at verse 39. He prays and says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Second prayer, verse 42, my father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Is that the same prayer? No, not at all. In the second prayer, there is not even the thought of bringing up my will. The only concern that Jesus has now is the will of the Father. There is not even the request to let this cup pass. Rather, it is assumed that drinking the cup is the reality. And if this is what I need to do, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He has wrestled with God and he has prayed and he has not gotten the answer that he wanted. And excuse me here for just a second. This is a rabbit trail. I'm just sick and tired of hearing people say that the reason your prayers aren't answered are because you don't have enough faith. Because what was Jesus' fault in the garden? He had faith. So it's possible to pray with the right motives at no fault of the prayer and still not have your prayer answered. It's not rubbing Aladdin's lamp when you pray to God. He has prayed and he has wrestled. And here's here's the audacious thing. Jesus has learned to obey. It'll be on the screen here. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. It says this, and I have to think that the writer of Hebrews is explicitly thinking about this passage about the Garden of Gethsemane. During his earthly life, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Sounds awfully like the Garden of Gethsemane to me. And he was heard because of his reverence. But even though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what? He had suffered. Let me give you an illustration of this, okay? Jesus was God in the flesh. He never opposed God's will. That doesn't mean that he necessarily liked every component of that, okay? So um, in our choir room, we got a big, huge clock. I don't know who, ha- it must, must have been Ed has trouble seeing the clock that they had to put a big one up. I better watch it because it's going to be back up here then next week. Um, G- God's will for Jesus was 12 o'clock noon. Or 12 o'clock midnight. And when Jesus is praying, he's at 10.30. 
He's not opposed to it. He's not at 6 o'clock in opposition to what God wants. He's just at 10.30, maybe at 11 o'clock. And when he prays, he says, hey, hey, I just need to let you know this is what I want. Nevertheless, not what I want, what you want. He comes back the second time and he prays, and he's already kind of gotten out his, his, his wishes, and now he has the opportunity to focus on what, what helps him to glorify God the most. And what he wants is out of the picture now. What has happened? Through prayer, God has moved his will from 1030 to 12. And so instead of thinking that prayer is your way to manipulate God and get what you want, prayer is God's way of changing your will to move from what you want to what he wants. Some of you are probably not interested in praying anymore if it's not the way to get what you want. But God's desire is to get you to want what he wants. And through prayer, he gives strength to endure things that you would never think that you would have the strength to endure. Even though Jesus' experience is painful and difficult, the Bible says that he learned obedience through prayer. Friends, what an incredible gift that just as Jesus learned obedience through prayer, we can as well. And recognize that this prayer reverses the entire course of human history. It it, it transforms and completely reverses the entire course of human history. Where is Jesus praying in this passage? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, This is not the only garden that is talked about in the Scriptures. In the very first book, there's another garden called Eden. And in that garden, Adam and Eve said, not your will, but mine. And what happened as a result of that statement? Well, untold sadness, death, and destruction to billions of people, to the entire human race. Jesus in this garden says, not my will, but yours. And that also brought terrible suffering to the one who prayed it, but eternal life to those who would repent and trust and the one who died in the place of miserable sinners. Jesus had warned his disciples, his three closest disciples, about their devotional life. See, Peter's more interested in action than he is in prayer. Peter's ready to pull the sword out and go to war, but he's not willing to pray. And yet, God is warning him about his devotional life and that their prayer life is so important. It's how they fight temptation. They neglected it, They neglected prayer, and as a result, they all abandon, and Peter specifically denies the Lord. On the other hand, Jesus took his fears to his Father, and he discovered the strength to go forward to a terrible death, to a bearing of holy wrath. And when he gets up, there is no hint of fear There is no sense of wavering. There's no looking back over his shoulder. He says, get up, let's go, it's time. Jesus' strength was not found in his will. It was found in God's will. His strength was not found in his superior intellect. It was not based upon his love for God. It was his praying. And friends, for you and me today, let me make this explicitly clear that through prayer, praying gave Jesus the strength that enabled him to drink his wrathful cup so that you and I can drink from the communion cup. 
he took the cup, sat before him, and he drained it to the dregs so that when we drink, we drink grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness. But the one element that we never drink, the one fruit that's not in the fruit punch that we drink is any hint of wrath. Because the Bible says that there is now no condemnation for he who is in Christ Jesus. Friends, the fearful thing is for those of us that play at religion who have not truly trusted in Christ, that promise does not apply to you because the condition for no condemnation is being in Christ Jesus, not just Jesus being your buddy, but in being your Lord and your Savior. And so this morning, as we look at the absolute humility of Christ to subsume, to submit His will to the will of the Father, to go forward to an incredibly challenging um, problem with the power of God. We can rejoice that God enabled his, his Son Christ to bear our penalty for us. And yet today, there is almost unmistakably someone here this morning that doesn't really understand what it means to be in relationship with God. I don't say this to, to scare you, but the wrath of God is a terrible thing to face. And we're not going to trivialize getting right with God by making you respond in two minutes on the verse of a song. But if you need to develop some reassurance that you're understanding life well, that you're understanding scriptures comprehensively, I, the staff, our deacons, there are many people here this morning that would consider it a high and holy privilege to be able to speak with you about what it means to trust in God. Because as we've seen, Jesus' obedience is a beautiful thing for us. And it's given to us for our instruction. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your obedience and we thank you for how even today you have taught us through your word how to be your disciple. Father, it's not just from getting dressed up and going to church. It comes from obedience. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here today. If there are crooked ways in our life that you need to make straight, I pray that you will do what you need to do to make that so. I pray that you'll help us to stop playing around with our pet sins and to see the beauty of following Christ as so much more immensely valuable than doing things our way. Father, at the heart of the Christian message is us saying no to ourselves and learning how to say yes to you. And I pray today that if there is anyone here who needs to learn what it means to turn from their sin, to truly repent, and to place their faith in Christ, that today could be a day that they learn what it means for Jesus to be the substitute who died in our place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.